What's up, guys, and welcome to the Shandy Special. This is episode six, and for this episode, I'm really excited. I have with me Matt Moore, and Matt, if you don't know who he is, he covered the NBA for CBS Sports from 2010 to 2017, and he's a current senior NBA writer, editor-in-chief for the Action Network. You can find him on Twitter at HP Basketball. Matt, thanks for coming on. Hey, how are you? Doing good. I'm glad that we can find some time to talk here at 10.25 p.m. at night. I mean, the grind never stops, you know. I'm sure you can. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. <laughs> life, life of sports writers always up late, right? Hey, the best content comes out at night, so I'm excited about this. But we got a packed show with Matt, full of Matt's thoughts, because, I mean, that's what everyone's going to listen to this podcast for. They don't want to hear me talk. They want to hear you talk. So I'm excited about that. Um, but we're going to kind of talk about Detroit, because, I mean, you came out of Pistons podcast. I don't know if you knew that, but... We're going to test the waters with your piston thoughts, and then we're going to hit the NBA. Um, but first, I kind of want to get a background on you and, and kind of just how you got to where you are. But first, I got to ask you, Matt, what's it like to have a Twitter account with over 100,000 followers? Is it fun, or do you hate it sometimes, or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it was a lot more fun than I think about five years ago. Um, <laughs> the environment's gotten progressively worse, and, and part of it is you kind of hit these uh, tiers where the followers get a little bit worse. Like 25,000 mm-hmm. is pretty great. Like You're like, oh, there's like all these people, and it's like a fun little community, um, and that's pretty cool. And then 50,000 is like, oh, okay, there's there's a little bit of noise in here, and, and some some people are, are kind of tough, but you know, in general, it's fine. 75,000, you're like, oh boy, <laughs> I, I got a lot of random random crazy people in my mentions every day. And then you hit 100,000, and you're just like, Twitter is a hellscape, and I am trapped within it. Um, but like, I'm, I mean, at the same time, like, I'm thankful for everybody that reads my work and that has listened mm-hmm. to me podcasts and who supported me through the years, and like, it takes the time to read whatever it is that I put on Twitter. Like, I appreciate uh, them paying attention to anything I have to say. Um, I try and keep in mind that the people that that will reply and get in arguments with you represent a really small percentage mm-hmm. of the people that read you and they're reading your tweets. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if I interact with with you know 15 tough people in a day that's a fraction of the people that probably saw those tweets so mm-hmm. uh, if you keep the right perspective about it i think you can still be a good platform well and the people that argue with you are typically in the back of their heads like oh my gosh i'm arguing with matt moore you know they love it they're just trying to you know keep it going almost to, to keep you talking to them that's the funny thing well what's funny is that my favorite interactions are the ones where sometimes i'll, I'll run into people that are just like outwardly just vicious like they're <laughs> just being jerks and you could just tell um, and I'll ask, I'll like, I'll say like, in all sincerity, I was like, I'm not being snarky. Like, are you okay? Cause you seem really <laughs> like upset. Yeah. And sometimes they're like, you know, I'm having a really hard time. Oh, <laughs> they're wow. like, they're like, I'm having a really hard time. Like this is going on in my life. This, I just lost my job or my mom's in the hospital or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just blowing off some steam and I'll be like, I get that. Like, I understand, you know, like this isn't really worth being this, this mad about. Um, and then they're like, I've read, they'll be like, you know, I read you for years. Like I really like your stuff. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> maybe just like keep that and not so much like you're an idiot who should be fired. Um, it's just kind of funny how, how we, I just think that sometimes um, we channel um, mm-hmm. personas or versions of ourselves onto the online kind of scape and that uh, can create a lot of bad situations in which like we're people that we don't really want to be. I think a lot of times mm-hmm. um, the bad things about Twitter, Twitter or any type of social media, you're just being a ver- you're channeling a version of yourself that you don't, you don't even really want to be that. And that's, I think something to keep in mind at all times. So do you find yourself doing a lot of therapy later at night as the night goes on? 
no, not not too often. Uh, I've taken kind of a step back from it. I've had to. Mm-hmm. I had to kind of take a step back from it and just be like, I gotta get separated. Because one thing, like, um, like I'll fall into it too. Where during the playoffs, I turn into kind of a lunatic because like I'm trying to figure out these matchups and these series and everything feels so fraught with uh, stakes in terms of careers and livelihoods and contracts and everything and mm-hmm. uh, that gets you know when you're invested in this every single day that gets to be a lot and so like, I've, I've really tried over the summer um, to kind of get step back and still be around and, and do little threads when I'm interested in a subject uh, but to not be on it as much every day and it's I think it's helped my mental health considerably this summer. Mm-hmm. As far as looking at your mentions, I mean, do you even look at those anymore, or do you kind of just let those go off? So, for the longest time, um, I had my mentions turned on to everybody. Like, anybody <laughs> could reply, and I would read it, and I would try and engage. Because it's always been really important to me to not act like I'm superior, that I'm not mm-hmm. better than, like, the people that read me, because I don't believe that I am. Mm-hmm. And eventually I had so many, like, um, sequences where I was arguing with such stupid people. Um, somebody I know on Twitter, Shrillist, was like, you know, you really got to turn on me- only mentions from people that follow you. Um, mm-hmm. And I was reluctant to do it for a long time, and eventually got so bad that I turned that on, and that's made it a lot better. Okay. Uh, but I still read all of the comments from people that follow me, because uh, I still want that feedback. I still want mm-hmm. that interaction. I, I want to be accessible. That's why I'm on this podcast. Like I, I want to be an, an accessible mm-hmm. person, because I, I don't think that I'm like a member of some sort of like insider media club. I'm not that. I'm, I'm still uh, somebody that's that wants to have those interactions with fans. Mm-hmm. Well, I can remember a time I got a retweet from you and, and my tweet just took off and I thought it was the best day of my life. So I just want to <laughs> say thank you for that moment um, of giving me that little uh, 20 minutes of what your entire life is like. You know, I was glad to experience that for a little bit. Um, but I kind of wanted to uh, go a little bit in your background here. And I did some I did some uh, extensive research. I might be impressed by this. But I saw you got a bachelor's in psychology back in 04. And now you're a full-time NBA writer. So how did you exactly get here to this point? <laughs> so um, I was in a journalism program at the University of Missouri when I was a freshman. Uh, not in the school because you have to be admitted into the school. Uh, but I was really overwhelmed by how much of a kind of a corporate and it was very much like a uh, up-and-comers kind of because it's a competitive school. Mm-hmm. Like it should be like that because like it should be like you have to fight and scrap to get ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really understand. I was like, shouldn't it be just about who's like the best writer? Like, should that be what it's about? Um, and that was naive. Uh, but it was also really discouraging for me to be like that. So um, I wound up, I finished three credits shy of a degree in political science, which I actually think I'm going to probably go back and get at some point. Okay. And I finished a degree in psychology because I was really interested in how people work. Like mm-hmm. I, I, my focus was on social psych. Um, and you see that kind of with like how I interact with fan bases. It's like I'm, I'm genuinely really fascinated by <laughs> the differences in fan bases based off of where their geographic location is and the histories of the teams and mm-hmm. how that influences how how fan bases kind of act, not monolith, but in certain patterns. Um, so anyway, I got out of school, and it uh, turns out with a psychology degree, uh, without a graduate degree, there's not a lot you can do. Uh, so I sent uh, emails to about 15 different programs across the country and places that I was interested in living and was like, hey, I want to come work in your psych lab. I'll work for free. And a woman in Austin, Texas was like, I'll pay you. Like I'll pay you minimum wage. Come down and work in the, in the lab part time, and you can work towards your G your uh, GRE. <laughs> um, so I went down to Austin and I did that, and it wasn't enough money. So of course I was working other jobs. And 
I did a bunch of different things. And eventually, like, worked my way out of that. I realized that that wasn't really, I didn't want to go back to school. That wasn't the path that I kind of wanted. And I wound up working for a nonprofit just as I was getting married. And my fiance was like, I was in Austin, Texas as like a 24 year old person, which meant I was having a good time with my nightlife mm-hmm. um, every single night. And my fiance was like, hey, um, I don't want to go out sometimes, but you're going to need a hobby because you can't be closing down the bars every night. And I was like, all right, fair enough. And this is like any kind of blog's heyday. So I started a blog with a friend. I asked a friend, I was like, hey, do you want to start an NBA blog with me? And he was like, sure. Um, And we had no expectations. It was just going to be somewhere to kind of screw around online. Hmm. And so uh, I founded Hardwood Paroxysm and, uh, you know, published something. And I email back and forth with Henry Abbott who ran True Hoop, which eventually became ESPN's True Hoop. Um, and he was nice enough to respond to me and we kind of talked about some things. When I started the blog, like he linked to it and it was a terrible first blog post. Um, but I kept working at it and I got better. And then he linked to it one day and it was like, I got 500 hits. And it was like the biggest thing in the world. It was like, oh my God, 500 <laughs> yeah. people read something I wrote. This is incredible. Um, and one of the things I did at that site was like, I really loved the, the kind of the community of NBA blogs. So I reached out a lot for her writers to do like round tables and it would mm-hmm. do cross traffic because there wasn't Twitter to promote your stuff. So it was like, mm-hmm. oh, you can find new audiences. It's kind of like a hub through me. Um, and in that I found a guy named Tom Zeller who's, SB Nation forever. Um, at the time, he was working for a site called AOL Fan House, which was a really great collection of writers. And um, Will Brinson, Tom Fernelli, both of CBS Sports, and Sam Amick, and um, like a lot of, of really great writers were at Fan House through the years. And Chip Patterson. Um, and I was, I was like, I was talking to Tom on GChat one day and was like, well, my goal eventually is to like work a fan house, but I know that's like a long way off. And Tom was like, wait, you want to write a fan house? And I was like, yeah. He's like, hang on. And 10 minutes later, I got an email from the editor of fan house NBA that was like, Hey, when can you start? Tom says wow. you're good. Wow. And so, yeah. So I started working part time at fan house. I did that for two years, and then I got to know Kurt Helen, who runs NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, and he was just starting that site, and he was like, hey, I need a weekend editor, and I think you'd be great for this, and I jumped at it. I was like, absolutely, so I worked as a weekend editor for about six months, um, and then I went to a blog conference, and I was at a blog conference, and Eric Kay, who works at CBS Sports, was there, and they had never done any sort of blogs or blog platforms, and they needed to get in the aggregation game, and I pitched them on an entire like blog platform, um, and so eventually uh, he hired me, and then I suggested he hire Will Brinson, who's still their lead NFL writer, uh, and, he, and Will and I said that he should hire Tom Fernelli, who's still one of their main college football writers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I worked at CPS Sports uh, for seven years, and it was incredible. And the first day, my first day on the job was the first day of free agency in wow. 2010, the year that LeBron left <laughs> Cleveland. That's amazing. So it was crazy. Wow. So you've been, you've been doing this for a while now, and people look at these jobs from the outside view and think, man, you guys are working 24 hours a day. You never really have a break. And you, you even said, I mean, you have two kids, and you got you know that whole other lifestyle. What keeps you in this business? I mean, what keeps you going in this just everyday grind? Um, I'm different from a lot of folks in the industry in that um, I had jobs outside the industry mm-hmm. before. And 
there are really tough jobs in sports writing, like mm. grinding away as like a 24 year old doing high school football for a small paper. Like that sounds like it sucks. Mm. Um, and like, you know, there are jobs that are really high stress. Like I could never, I could never dream of doing Adrian Wojnarowski's job. I couldn't handle the stress, let alone mm. the skills necessary to be the best newsbreaker in the game. Mm. Um, but the reason I keep doing this is, there's two reasons. One, I'm good at it. Like I can confidently say like, I'm, I'm good at my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I may not be the best at my job. I may not be the best at, at all things about my job, but I'm good at this job. And, um, I find that if you have an interest in something and you're good at it, like you should probably do it as long as you can. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that quite honestly, like I, I worked office jobs and I, I did stuff like I ran poker tournaments in bars and restaurants in Austin, which meant picking up tables in 105 degree heat and loading them into the back of a truck and unloading them and working till two and then, un- and then unloading those things and then driving home and sleeping for three hours and then getting up to go work at an office as like doing filing. Like I worked three jobs, sleeping wow. three hours a night. Wow. Um, so when you've done that, mm-hmm. which is still not as hard as some people have it in this country, like not nearly as hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you've done stuff like that and then you have a job like mine, you're just like, no, I will do this forever because I know how I know how, how crappy other jobs can be. So like I never kind of lose – I try very hard never to lose sight of how lucky I am to do this job. Okay. And kind of take me like during the NBA season, like uh, November, December, January kind of day, normal day. What does a work day, quote unquote, look like for you? So I'm up at seven with the kids, uh, <laughs> get my son to school, my daughter to daycare, and then I will come back. Um, and immediately the first thing I do is I turn on games. I will turn on, uh, one game on the television and one game on my iPad and I'll be trying to do watch and take notes on both of them while I'm doing research and checking out on Twitter and seeing what the stories are. Uh, with the action network, a lot of my stuff is built along the lines and the gaming and uh, gambling. So mm-hmm. I'm looking at the lines and checking where the numbers are there, uh, what the over-unders are, what the trends are, what I need to be notable, notable of. Um, I'll start writing. Uh, I'll write, you know, make as many, get through as many pieces as I can or, or knock out a chunk. If I'm working on a project, I'll be on the phone doing calls, do that until about, uh, two 40. And then I go pick up my son. I go get my kid, uh, come home, uh, settle him in, work for about another hour. And then I gotta make dinner. I make dinner cause I'm the guy that cooks in the house. Wow. Very impressive. Uh, get dinner on the table for the wife by five thirty, and then it's back to watching games and I watch games and write until deep in the night. And that's not on days when I'm doing, uh, when I'm not in Denver, either speaking to somebody for an interview or covering a game, uh, which are different, but, um, wow. you do that and you do that pretty much like every day. And then you don't, what's crazy because on some days I don't do a lot of work and some days I will work 18 hours during the playoffs mm-hmm. it's crazy you're just like constantly trying to get as much information as possible and, and consume as much or create as much content as you can um so there's a lot to kind of process the biggest thing is that when you're covering 30 nba teams you are just i at least am always trying to know as much as i can mm-hmm. all the time so i'm checking twitter i'm trying to read blogs i'm trying to read small accounts i'm trying to listen to podcasts uh, i'm trying to do all these things to get as much of a sense of what's going on in the league 
and with these teams as they evolve throughout the season. Like I constantly, I, I always say that every season for a team is, is an organism that develops on its own. It has its own illnesses and strengths and mm-hmm. um, ticks and behaviors, and you got to follow all those to really understand the ecosystem that's an NBA season. And so there's a lot of stuff to consume, and you're never going to get all of it, but you try and get as close as you can to the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And I mean, everything that you just said, is this something you can like do for like 10 more years, give as much energy and effort into this? Or is there something in your head like, I'm going to try and go do something else, you know, in the next 10, whatever so years? I don't know. Like, I think on one end, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride the roller coaster as long as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, if I come to a point where there's no, uh, it's not even so much fun or joy because I don't think your job has to be fun. Mm-hmm. But if I don't, if I get up on the day and I'm not interested at all in covering the NBA, it's going to be time to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like running Paroxysm because uh, we're, I'm very proud of the fact that when Paroxysm was around, 41 people that worked or that wrote there wound up working part-time or full-time in sports in some capacity at some wow. point. Wow. Um and writers like Rob Mahoney at SI wrote at Hardwood Paroxysm, um, and like Ian Levy at Fansided, Andrew Lynch at Fox Sports. A lot of a lot of people in the industry did at least spent some time writing at that site, and I got a lot of satisfaction out of helping young writers. So like I still mm-hmm. I, I kind of have a pull to where someday I may want to go do an editor job, um, mostly just because I, I want to help writers get better and i think that paying it forward for the opportunities that i've been given um for whatever reason privilege or, or anything else i think uh, it demands that i try and pay that forward in whatever way i can yeah and i mean there's so many good writers out there that, that just aren't being heard or seen so are, are you thinking that like connections is your ultimate way of just going getting up there because i mean just the amount of content going out in this day and age yeah, I think I'm curious to know what's going to happen because if we go through these evolutions of the ecosystems and they're not necessarily cyclical, but they do evolve in certain trends and they'll go towards areas and away from others. We're in a real noise period right now where there's so much out there and it can't all be consumed. Yeah. Um, I do think we're probably going to have some sort of coalescence and, and ability to like drive things down into pillars or mm-hmm. like tunnels that people get into because I think people still like communities. They like mm-hmm. uh, reading guy they like reading writers where they know that only they and a select few other people are reading those writers Mm -hmm. and that i think will probably come back around how it you know how it comes about i'm not sure and that's going to be um what's going to be interesting but i'm i would be interested to see where it's going to go and try and tap into seeing what's next in terms of content creation Hmm. interesting all right Let's jump to uh, some Pistons talk. So I've had four beat writers for Detroit come on my podcast before. You're my first, you know, national writer, so I'm I'm very excited to hear what an outsider's perspective is because most people aren't really, you know, high or even middle of Detroit. And in your Twitter bio, it it ends with "quote I hate your team." So I want to put that to the test because I'm interested here. So let's start here. What when I say Detroit Pistons, what's the first thing you think of? I think their history. Like I, I think of the 2014 mm-hmm. uh, that won the title. I think of Rip Hamilton and Tayshawn Prince and Sheed and Chauncey Billups. Like that's that's who, who I think of. And then I, I think of Ben Gordon. That's okay. who I think of because um, Ben Gordon was like the start of the downfall of that team, where mm-hmm. 
if Joe Dumars had held on for one more summer, he was going to have max cap space in the biggest free agency summer with a franchise that had won a title six years earlier and had been to the conference finals seven times and still had the uh, kind of luster of a classic, mm. you know, historic franchise. Mm. And instead, he gave a huge contract to Charlie Villanueva and Ben Gordon. Uh, and that was really the beginning of the end for the Pistons. Um, I think this, the, after that, like the next thing I think of is is Blake, mm-hmm. and just like how phenomenal he is. And uh, it's it's interesting because on one hand, it's like a bummer that he's somewhere where he's not going to be appreciated because he's so far from relevance. Mm-hmm. And on another, he's so far from the spotlight and the tension and having to manage all of the egos and complicated dynamics that existed in, with the Clippers. Mm-hmm. And it's been awesome to see him and just like, hey, here's what Blake can do. Like, here's mm-hmm. the furthest most of what Blake Griffin can do when he's got total control, total freedom, and low expectations. And, and that, I think, is a lot of fun to watch. Um, but it is kind of, like, striking of, of how the Pistons are bad. Like, they're not a bad team. Their over was an easy – it was one of my top three over bets last year. Uh, I rank every single team's win total over mm-hmm. under, uh, and I'm doing it again this year. And they're going to be on the over again. It's really mm-hmm. easy to look at the Pistons, their advanced metrics, and just be like, "Oh yeah, they're going to win more than 34 and a half games." Like that's going to happen. Yes. Um, but they're not going to win more than 44. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just not. They're not going to win more than 44. Um, they're almost definitely not making it out of the first round. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to be considered a real threat. They're not going to be discussed much on the on the national stage, mm-hmm. uh, and it's hard to see a way for them to get to that point. So it's like they're just in this nebulous area where they're not a disgrace. They're not worth yeah. criticism. They don't need to be torn to pieces, but they can't be spoken of and with any sort of serious time or effort mm-hmm. because of how far away they are from real relevance, even in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, you're hitting my next points with, uh, I wanted to ask about the Vegas odds, where as low as 34.5, high as 37.5 as of August 27th, so these are very recent, even after all the moves. Why do you think that, I mean, and we had 41 last year with the with a way worse bench than this year. We cleaned up our bench. Health is really the only concern in my eyes. Why do you think they gave us that low of a, of a win total? Well, it happened last year, too. Um, I should say, like, 34 and a half, I think it popped early on in the summer, and now the lowest I have in the, the five major books that I, I kind of keep an eye on is 36 and a half mm-hmm. uh, at FanDuel, and that, that number is really soft. So one thing you'll notice is that teams like Memphis always have really low numbers, even relative to their expectations. Mm-hmm. Like, when the Grizzlies were still competitive, they were a really easy overbet. Because teams that have absolutely zero backing that nobody cares about are never going to get action. So they're just trying to generate numbers okay. on either side. And there's a perception, I think, even still, that like smaller markets are worse. Um, the Lakers are always inflated. Like There's a reverse action there. Like Boston, um, there's a, a high note at Caesars that has Boston at 51 and a half wins. And that's absolute lunacy. Um <laughs> Versus, you look at, at at most teams. Like the Utah Jazz are an exception this year. Usually, Utah is really low, but like yeah. you know, Toronto last year I thought was was low. I still had the under because I didn't know what was going to happen with Kawhi. But mm-hmm. um, you kind of have this where the non luster teams, the non um, you know real luxury teams, don't wind up having very high totals. I think there's also kind of a sense of. Uh, 
Blake's injury history is probably baked into that number, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. given how hurt he was at the end of the season, how often he suffered season-ending injuries, um, that, I think, is probably part of it. And and uncertainty over, you know, is there going to be a point where this team does pull the plug, mm-hmm. trades Drummond, and, and maybe starts over? And if not, um, then that changes things, I think. But I think there's some of that baked into the number, number to protect the, the books as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting look at the team this year with Andre with the player option probably not gonna take it and then Reggie Jackson contract year I mean if, if the team can stay healthy then obviously I might be higher than most but fifth seed is, is my ultimate ceiling and that's with complete health which isn't probably gonna happen but I mean Derek Rose Blake Griffin if they can stay healthy because last year I mean I don't, I don't know how much he kept up but Ish Smith missed like 26 games so Jose Calderon played significant minutes and you do not want Jose Calderon playing significant minutes for your squad in 2018. Right. And so you, you get you give Ish those healthy games there, they win, you know, more games. And then if Blake doesn't go down at the very end, they're a six seed last year. So with that being said, in, in the additions of Markeith Morris, you know, uh, Christian was intriguing. Michael Beasley may be intriguing. Just as far as depth, we haven't had depth. You go, you see last year, Zaza Pachulia, Jose Calderon, uh, John Lur, Langston Galloway, guys that aren't getting it done and getting paid big bucks. And, and our front office this year has kind of cleaned it up a little bit. I mean, what do you think this team ceiling is? And this is if being healthy, because there's really no telling what this team will look like if health takes a hit come trade deadline. Okay, um, I'll give you the absolute best case scenario. Uh, let's say Victor Oladipo doesn't come back until February, and mm-hmm. the Pacers really fall off a cliff. Um, and let's say the Raptors have a championship hangover and just nothing is working and it's just evident that the run is over. And so Masai Ujiri starts like pawning off pieces. He just mm-hmm. starts basically breaking the team down. He trades Kyle Lowry. He trades Serge Ibaka. He trades Marcus Saul. He gets mm-hmm. picks back, etc. That takes them out. Um, mm-hmm. You get the Sixers that are going to be better. You get the Bucks that are going to be better. You get the Celtics that are going to be better. Um, I can talk myself into the Pistons having a better record than the Nets. So I can put the I can put the Pistons honestly there at fourth. That's like the absolute okay. ceiling, um, and that's still only going to be at probably like a max of like forty six wins. Okay. Um, the East is just really weak, mm-hmm. so I think like that's probably like an optimum outcome for them is uh, them at, at forty six. I have them right now at forty three and a seven seed. And I think that that's probably that's obviously what I think is more reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got. Uh, Sixers, Bucks, Pacers, Celtics, Raptors all above them and, and by three wins or more. Uh, and then I've got the Nets above them by one game uh, with 44 wins, them at 43, and the Heat with 42. Um, there's like a whole bunch of teams here with the, the Nets, the Pistons, the Heat, the Magic that are all clumped together fighting for that eighth seed, kind of like those teams were last year. Uh, some of those teams at least summing in mm-hmm. the, the Hornets there with with some of them. Uh so I think they're going to be around 500. I just don't think you can reasonably expect them to be um, considerably over 500 because the biggest problem is I don't know what this team does great. Like I just mm-hmm. don't know. They were the they were the you know they were so kind of mediocre across the board in most of their situations outside of pick and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, like on spot ups, they were 21st. That's bad. Um, they weren't great defensively. Like, there's no real identity I can point to for this team other than like Blake Griffin's awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a ceiling if they break up the team. I think if they make if they trade Drummond and they get good return, I mm-hmm. think they get better. 
Uh, I'm not. I don't think Drummond is terrible. I don't think he's a drag. I think the return on Drummond with piece more pieces around Griffin, and you know possibly a different point guard could really raise things. Mm-hmm. Like Jackson is undeniably a boon to the team because any sort of advanced metrics analysis, you realize like, oh, they're just gonna win more if they have Reggie Jackson. Like that's just how it comes down. And, ra- and that's mostly because it, like, Jackson's not a great point guard, but he's competent. Mm-hmm. And all you need is really is mm-hmm. competent. So if you were to get a good point guard, uh, you might really be able to take a leap. But there's a bunch of scenarios, I think, where Detroit trades Drummond and gets significantly better with depth because they just need to be able to not have it be Blake steps off the floor and they bleed entirely. Yeah. Um, but going into the season, that's still their model. And so I have to have like a lot of skepticism about what their ceiling is. So that's the thing. I mean, if you trade Andre, it's very likely he's not going to re-sign with the team you're trading to. So you can't even get good return from a trade with him. Or do you have to include some other pieces? You know, I think uh, I think he's one where you can take advantage of certain franchises. Like, I wonder if mm-hmm. uh, Miami. Like, let's say Miami's like more competitive than expected, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, okay, um, they've really got something going, and they want to cash in on it. Well, you can probably wind up getting a lot of really good players from from Miami uh, if if you know Pat Riley is able to say, okay, I'm going to retire and I'm leaving you with Andre Drummond and Jimmy Butler for the next X years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how you're able to take advantage of it. Now they don't have picks, so you're just getting players and assets. Yeah. But a lot of those guys are, are pretty good, so I think that that matters um, in terms of the context too. But you know, maybe it's right that he's just not going to have value because there there continues to be conversations around the league about exactly you know where Drummond's head at if he's a guy that you want around all of those things. So I'm not sure if you're going to be able to get the kind of return, but if you are able to work the phones and you're able to get the kind of deal that it's at least theoretically possible, that I think it wind up helping. And he's going to probably turn down 28 million dollars and test the open market. I mean, with with a weak class and, and potentially like what four or five unrestricted top guys, there's a lot of player options out there for next offseason. Do you see any team offering him the money that he's going to want, or do you think he'll be foolish to take not take the player option for next year? I don't honestly know, and, and the reason I say that is like um, it's really foolish to, to say now. Because it's mm-hmm. entirely possible that two teams that might be on that list of would have interest um, could wind up having better years than positive than they thought and kind of going in, yeah. or having worse years and then you know more tanking and clearing cap space. Um, there's a, a there's a real skepticism amongst the execs I've talked about about next summer that anybody's really going to want to shell out because they know how bad the class is. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. like there's two ways of thinking about it. It's either everybody's bad, so I'm not going to overpay, mm-hmm. or the alternative, which is okay. There's nobody really on this market. We got to get somebody, so we're going to overpay the guys that are available. And mm-hmm. those are like the two things that are kind of in conflict going into next summer. I tend to believe in the NBA that somebody's always going to want to pay the money because somebody's always going to want to try and keep their job. And mm-hmm. like that's where I come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it, it, that somebody will win from the money, but I just don't know if it'll be what he's asking for, and I don't know who that team's going to be. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And that reminds me of Stan Van Gundy right before. I mean, he knew his job was about to be out the door, and that Blake Griffin move I feel like was a desperation attempt on his on his part, but I don't think he was the right coach to try and mesh Blake in with the roster. Um, but that's interesting. And I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, what do you think about Luke Kennard? Do, do you think he's a guy that has been kind of undervalued at Detroit and he can actually become a person that can get maybe 15 a game? Or do you think he's just going to kind of be that role player that won't ever really get to the next level? 
think he's <laughs> my wife hates it when when sports writers use the word special about a player. Um, <laughs> I've tried to explain there that it really means like exceptional. I don't think Kennard's exceptional, yeah. but I think that he's valuable and that he has a role. And I think that that helps a lot. Like he, there are things that he does that are helpful, and I think that matters. Um, when you're trying to put together a formula. And, and the fact that he's got a little bit of versatility to him, I think, matters. Um, I don't necessarily, like, I don't think that he's, like, a building block. But, you know, look, they were they were plus 1.1 with him on the court and minus 1.1 without him, which kind of puts it in context, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're better off without him, but you're not really bad without him. Um, you're better off with him than without him, but it doesn't make that much of a difference. Uh, I do think that he's promising. I think that there's a reason that a lot of the better lineups involved him. And mm-hmm. I think that in the right combination of lineups, um, he can be a guy that I think really helps you. And this guy that everyone winds up talking next year and saying, you know, he's having a really good season. Luke Kennard, like that, that I can definitely see like, he's, at, you know, six, five, uh, he's just pretty much what you want in, in a mm-hmm. wing. And I think that there's there's pretty good value there. Well, he averaged 22 minutes a game, 39% from three on four per three attempts, and only eight attempts a game. And in, in the thought process in Detroit fan base nation is Langston Galloway. He's on his last year. Been talks about him getting traded for days now. I don't know if they can find a deal for him, but he averaged 21 minutes a game. So if you get him out of town, Kennard will take those minutes and carve out an even bigger role. Because, I mean, he was, you know, in the Milwaukee, he was really one of the only bright spots for Detroit in that. Terrible four games here against Milwaukee, shooting right. shooting sixty percent from three on three point eight attempts. Like that, that's impressive. And he averaged fifteen a game. Game one, he was the only person actually not scared of Milwaukee um, in that disaster of a game. So that's kind of thought that is going around is that maybe you know if you give him more minutes, you know he hasn't shown what he can do. Yeah, um, I tend to go the other way, which is like instead of trying to see what he can do, I think you better to kind of optimize. Um, what he does do like that that would be okay. where i would wind up wanting to focus like he was 53rd percentile on catch she's last year via synergy which is good um and you know he was, he was 62nd percentile on jump shots off the dribble so it's like he's like he can shoot and that's yeah. valuable and that has i think you know upside there even if it's like spotted numbers overall um were not great but he was he suffered around the rim which that's one of the things is like, do you mm-hmm. want to put the ball more in the hands of a guy that struggles to finish, mm-hmm. or do you just want him to be, you know, involved in certain mechanisms? Like I think running handoffs with him and Blake Griffin is a like that's money. Like mm-hmm. that's a sequence that you could probably, you know, mm-hmm. do a lot with. Um, it's one of the reasons that you know we we'll, we have to kind of see who else is going to stand out on the roster because you you have to figure out mechanisms that are going to work. But like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm kind of nervous. Is like, where does Derrick Rose fit in? The, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like, where where does a Rose Canard? Like, there's not a lot of oxygen there for Canard, and maybe that's fine that he could just be a spot up weapon to to you know space the floor. But I feel like that honestly underuses him to a degree. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of things for them to try and figure out with the lineups, and it's going to be I think a, a real juggling act for Dwayne Casey. Do you think that I don't know how much you watched Bruce Brown last year? Do you think that Kennard should start in that starting five, or do you think Bruce's defense is too valuable to take out of that lineup? I would start Kennard. Um, okay. Just looking at all, all of the kind of mechanisms, like I think I think Brown's good, um, but I think that you, you need part of it is like the offense is more promising than the defense, so I would just go all in on. Okay. I, I would go all in on the offense. I would also like I want to make things as easy as possible for Blake Griffin. Mm-hmm. as possible. So I want to maximize his time on the floor, and I think Kennard does that. 
Okay, and we had a Twitter question from Brandon Engel. He asked, what's the possible move that could take Pistons out of mediocrity, and that's either tanking or go all in? I mean, what comes to your mind when you think of that? I mean, I, I'm sure you might be more tank route, but what's going on in your head? No, I don't I don't really go the tank route. Okay. You know, I think um, I, it depends on what your goal is. If you're, like, championship or bust, then, okay, you need to run the process. Like, you just do. Like, mm-hmm. if you want to win a title, you need to tank and hope that you get a transcendent talent. Um, like an all-time like Zion Williamson type talent, and then you have to hope you build around him and build around him to where he gets to win, and so he's not stuck on a losing team, but not too much. So you sacrifice your flexibility and do all that, and then re-sign him and hopefully win a title, and then convince him to stay. And like, mm-hmm. good luck, you know, yeah. good luck with all that. Uh, versus like, if you just want to be like a really good team that has a shot every year, which was like a really sustainable model that the Pistons pulled off in the two thousands. Um, and bear in mind that we're, we're going to enter a time in which a lot of like the really like LeBron's getting ready to hang it up and there's going to be a, and Durant had an Achilles. So we're going to enter a time where there's going to be an opening. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to see not a downturn in talent necessarily, but we're seeing, I think, an era where it's no longer dominated by these singular teams. Uh, mm-hmm. So there'll be a window for the Pistons to kind of do what they did before, which is just be in the conversation every year i think you can probably get there but the biggest thing is you're going to need to make big trades yeah like um if you really want to get there honestly the biggest thing is trade blake griffin for as many assets as humanly possible trade him for as many like you're in conversations with okc like if okc finds something else to pair with griffin you call okc and are like we want some of that draft equity that you got Mm -hmm. um and that's the kind of thing where they're not going to be in that spot, but you see if you can make that kind of a move. Um, otherwise, it's going to be, you know, you, like I said kind of earlier, you got Blake, you try and find an upgraded point guard, you trade Andre yeah. Drummond, you cash in that as much as possible. You try and get a player that's under the radar, that's got a lot of upside, not necessarily like a James Harden-type trade, because that's a pretty high bar to clear, mm-hmm. but you're, you're looking for what Reggie Jackson was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right, which is like a point guard that's maybe under the radar, it's coming off the bench, who's got really good numbers that could really thrive and come into himself next to Blake Griffin. That's possible. You just got to be able to find the right guy. Okay, so let me ask you this. How possible? I mean, we were in talks for Westbrook. I'm not even sure if we were even close when it came down to it. But, I mean, DeMar DeRozan on a player option year. And Bradley Beal, you know, maybe he'll be put on the block at some point. Is there any possibility? Because, I mean, Piston fans are, are, are chanting for DeMar and Bradley. Just the, the, the thought of actually trying to get them, you know, is putting them over the top. But is there any chance that they can make a play for one of those guys and pair him with Blake and, you know, just be like, hey, just try your best, see what happens, you know? Yes, but if you do that, you should guarantee, you can go ahead and guarantee yourself, like, you're not, uh, you're going to be screwing yourself in the long term. Like, if you're giving up draft assets for DeMar DeRozan, you are effectively sinking your team <laughs> and you're going to be stuck in mediocrity. Mm-hmm. Um, for eternity like, there's just no good way that that happens you know Beal I think is a little bit different like if you put Beal next to Griffin okay maybe like that might mm-hmm. be able to make some make a ruckus in the Eastern Conference mm-hmm. uh with the right kind of set of things but um the Wizards have been re- been resolved that they're not going to trade Beal to continue to be there they, that may shift but that's where they they've been stubborn about not even really broaching the conversation mm-hmm. um so I don't I don't know what like kind of big upgrade they're that you they're gonna get, and if they, I will say this: in order to get them to Detroit, you're gonna have to give up so much draft equity. It's gonna mm-hmm. put you in a really precarious spot if it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. And going all in in that situation, everybody thinks like, "Yeah, I want, I'd rather take the shot." Not 
you said that before you're going to deal with like 10 years, 10 more years of complete irrelevance and sub 500 basketball. And that gets rough. So be, be real careful with what you wish for there. Mm-hmm. And, and so if Reggie and Andre both off this team by trade deadline, and it's kind of just Blake and not a lot else. I mean, do you think out of respect from even the front office, you think they try and just trade him and, you know, just say, all right, we tried. We're going to try and see what we can do with a young roster. But, I mean, because, yeah, getting D. Rose and Marquise Morris, it's like they're going to they're try and compete. But what happens if Reggie and Andre, you know, both kind of, you know, go somewhere else? Then what? Yeah, and that's kind of the thing is you don't really know if they're coming or going. Um, yeah. I, have a, I have a feeling that they're going to just try and win as much as possible in the playoffs right now, and they need to be where they're at and hope that things go well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, I think Blake could stay healthy and have another year like that. They just If everything kind of lines up, they could be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just going to take so much for them to, to really contend. I, I have a hard time seeing them letting go of and really starting over because mm-hmm. the financials there just get really tough. And those financials are, are very real for teams in the market conditions that the Pistons are in. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, that was a great conversation about Detroit. Uh, I'm going to jump over to NBA talk now and, and kind of get into a little bit of what you do in the day-to-day and ask you this. Does load management – does it make life more difficult when trying to predict regular season awards slash win totals? And do you think it's good for the game or bad for the game? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm kind of working on something right now about it. I've talked to a lot of folks in the league and league office and around uh, executives, and there's a lot of uh, disparity in, in what they think is going to happen with, with load management. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that a lot of people I've talked to don't think the load management is going to be a big deal this season. They think it's going to be you know, it'll be used at times in select situations, but it won't be a rampant problem. The people that do believe it's going to be rampant are adamant it's going to be rampant. So, um, there'll be more to come on that at Action Network. I think that it does make it more difficult because, you know, injuries are a huge problem. And one of the things that it causes issues with is uh, the opposite of what most people expect. If, um, if the Pistons are favored by five, versus the Hawks, and Blake Griffin is out, and all of a sudden that line flips to Hawks minus one, um, which is too much. It probably dropped to, like, Pistons minus two. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the idea is, oh, Blake Griffin's out, so the Hawks can win. But the problem is more that the Hawks then think, oh, Blake Griffin's out. We got this. They got mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, they suck with that Griffin. We got this. And once that happens... The other guys in Detroit are amped up because they're like, we got to step up and do this. The guys that, that take Blake Griffin's spot are like, I finally get to play. I finally get to get minutes. So they play super hard, and that winds up mm-hmm. causing kind of mayhem. So, yeah, an NBA season with as many games, anything that disrupts the flow of energy levels, that really is what wreaks mayhem um, on the night-to-night performance. And so, yeah, like – the more that this becomes a, a talking point and a conversation, the harder it is to get a real feel for what's going to happen with a team. Mm-hmm. I mean, teams looking at the Raptors and how they handled Kawhi last year. I mean, you got a team like the Clippers with Paul George and Kawhi and then the Lakers with LeBron and AD. I mean, how would those coaches not look at that technique in Toronto and think we have to do this here? You know, I think there's going to be a lot of it because a lot of it's just player-driven. Like, the, if, mm-hmm. you know, the players have so much power that a player looks at it and says, Kawhi won a title this way. I want to win a title. Uh, I want to get my body right. I'm mm. not going to play. There's mm. no real recourse for what the teams can do. You can't take your star player and be like, we're going to find you if you don't play. Good luck mm. resigning him. <laughs> like, that's it. 
you know, so there's not a lot of recourse in terms of what they could do. A lot of this is going to be dictated by what the players want. If the players want to play, they'll play. That's what happens in Houston. Is James Harden wants to play every night. Um, if they don't want, if they are are really struggling with their body and want to try and prolong their longevity and their careers, we're going to see a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and jumping over to the the win totals for the the East right now. I mean, Sixers at fifty five, Celtics forty nine, Pacers forty seven point five. Which do we know when Victor's coming back? Last I heard, he was only doing one on O work. He wasn't even you know really doing much. Do you have any talk on him or? Uh, the word's been January. It was the last kind of update that we got. Um, there's been like various rumblings of like Victor's way behind. It could be mm-hmm. much later. And then there's mm-hmm. like. Victor's beating all expectations. He looks great. He could be back by November. Like there's all sorts of. We're not gonna know. Like we'll know once he once he gets there. Um, he's out until at least January. Like I'm. My analysis is built on Victor Oladipo is gonna be back in January. Okay, because that lineup without him isn't really you know it's not really impressive. And, and so I don't think I mean they they could probably flow at 44, 45 given if he wasn't there. But yeah, that was just an interesting thing to me. Um, and, and then you look at the West, the Rockets, 54.5, Clips, 54.5. And I, I saw a piece where you wrote about the Clippers and how you said that's probably too high. But I want to ask you, what teams, when you look at their win totals, who do you think that's no-brainer take the under or over for these teams? Like, what team stood out to you in that aspect? Um, I'm really high on the Suns, God help me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because their number is just so low. Like, when you say you're high on the Suns and people are like – you. When you say that, they're like, do you think they're a playoff team? Are you out of your mind? I'm like, no, their over-under is 27 and a half. I'm literally saying they can win 28 games. Um, they just, they got so many, they got so many actual NBA players. Like, mm-hmm. Ricky Rubio, Aaron Baines, Dario Saric. Um, they had okay. Kelly Oubre, who got hurt last year. Tyler Johnson. That's five. That's before we get to Booker and eight. So, like, if mm-hmm. we just ignore Booker, Aiton, and Bridges, they've got five dudes they can put on the floor who constitute an actual, honest-to-God NBA rotation. Um, that's huge. Just having mm-hmm. NBA-caliber players mm-hmm. is big. Like, that's where depth falls apart. That's, like, where, where, that's where things get dicey for Detroit is once you get into 6, 7, 8, it gets real, like, oh, boy, I don't know this guy's going to be in the league um, all the time. So, like, that's that, I think, is, is really key. Um Let's see. I'm uh, really high on the Bucks under. I believe that the Bucks are probably going to regress okay. uh, quite a bit, and their number is all the way up at 57 and a half. Like that's just an absurd number. Teams do not win that many games in back-to-back seasons. They will. They lost Malcolm Brogdon. They'll probably coast a little bit. They won't have as good of injury luck as they did last year. They won't have the clutch performance they did last year. It was a special year for them last season. Mm-hmm. They won't be as good. I'm kind of doing the same thing with the Nuggets. It's a little bit lower of a line. So I'm not as confident in it. The Nuggets are up to 52 and a half, and mm-hmm. I just feel like they're probably going to be a 51 team. I think the Nuggets are going to be a better team than mm-hmm. they were last year, but they're not going to win as many games, uh, and that's a pretty common trend. Um, the other one I think that, that really kind of stands out is um, uh, I like Chicago quite a bit at uh, 30 and a half. It gets sure. more dicey at the high level at 33, but the over for 30 and a half I think mm-hmm. is, is pretty good. The Eastern Conference, it's a soft division. Mm-hmm. Um, Otto Porter made a huge difference for them. They do have NBA talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Chicago can probably grind out 30, 32 wins. And it's going to be interesting because a lot of this is like you're banking on I'm, – I'm banking on like a lot of parity here. I don't have anybody winning 60 games. Like I, I got a lot of parity mm-hmm. in the league win next year. And if it goes the other way, I'm going to be in real trouble <laughs> because a lot of these teams are going to like you know, swing wildly to one way or the other. 
Yeah. Do you think Michael Porter Jr. is going to make a big difference this year? Or is he just going to kind of be that guy who what could have been? You know, the, the Nuggets kind of hyped him a lot to local media going into Summer League, and then he got hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a little bit of pullback on that in terms of, like, some people in the organization remain, like, steadfastly, like, oh, he's going to be great, he's going to be awesome. And then there mm-hmm. are people in the organization that are like, I don't know how much he's going to play. Like, we mm-hmm. got a really stacked rotation. Team's good. Mm-hmm. You know, and if he doesn't do what he needs to do, he's not going to play because Michael Malone has to win games. Mm-hmm. He can't afford to develop Michael Porter Jr. at the cost of wins for the team. Yeah. Um, I, I think I will say this: like every time that I've seen him work out, he blows you. Like you, you mm-hmm. raise your eyebrows and go, "Okay, all right," because um, he's just he's so big. Mm-hmm. And he's such an incredible shooter. Um, the question is, what does he look like on a floor? What does he look like? Can he handle the physicality? Uh, he's apparently been doing great in terms of defensive rebounding in the summer workouts. Uh, that changes when you get up against NBA muscle, mm-hmm. but um, there's been a lot of, of, of positive moments in terms of his defensive rebounding, and that might get him on the floor a little bit more along with his incredible shooting ability. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. What team are you most excited to watch this year? The New Orleans Pelicans. Okay. Um, you know, Drew Holiday. I like each one more a lot. J.J. Redick. Mm-hmm. Derek Favors. Zion Williamson. Uh, that's like before we even talk about Lonzo Ball or Brandon Ingram, either of which I'm very big on. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just going to be really fun. Like, they're just, they're, it's now the Gentry team. They're going to play with like such a weight lifted off of their shoulders. Uh, I think they're going to be a lot of fun to watch this season. Um, I'm excited a little bit for the Kings. I think, like, I, I, I watched a lot of De'Aaron Fox this summer, and mm-hmm. Fox is just so good. Mm-hmm. I think he's got another level he can get to. Um, some of their front office decisions may have been a little bit weird over the summer, but they're still extremely talented. I think that uh, their top-level guys are so fun. They're going to give them a chance every single night. They're just so plucky. What do you think it took to pull J.J. Redick from the Sixers and tell him to come to the Pelicans? And, I mean, that was literally like a, a first 10-minute deal that no one knew about or was talking about. Yeah, I think it was probably um, money and then, like, location a little bit for Redick that he really cares about that stuff. Um, I think depending on where he's living now, um, okay. I think that he knew there was an opportunity there for him to get minutes. He mm-hmm. was going to lose minutes with the Sixers because of where they were going to head it. I think he knew that. Um mm-hmm. So I think that was part of it, but yeah, I think there was a lot of that, those kind of dynamics that were involved, and I think Griffin's got a good, a good history with him, and that helps. Like relationships matter so much mm-hmm. in free agency, and we tend to overlook that when we're mm-hmm. looking after the Twitter sidelines. Yeah. Okay. And I was going to talk about Pelicans next question here, but what are your what's your stance on the Mavs and Pelicans this year? Do you think either one can make the playoffs? And then yeah, go and talk about the Mavs. How excited should Mavs fans really be? I'm really low on Dallas. Um, okay. I'm one of the few people that is. Like their over under is forty and a half, and my initial my initial win projection for them uh, had them thirteen games below that. I've raised it based off of trying to find the middle ground, but I still have them well under at thirty five. Um, Luka Doncic is awesome, and Kristaps Porzingis is tall uh, and can shoot, which is good. A little overrated on the perimeter defensively, a little underrated in terms of his interior defense, a little overrated in terms of his consistency offensively. He's got some real up-and-down flows month-to-month with the shooting percentages. Mm-hmm. And then after that, who is their third-best player? Yeah. Maxi Kleber? Like, that roster looks 
real bad when you actually write it down on paper mm-hmm. um, after you get past those two guys. I think everybody's just like, oh, well, Luca and KP. And I'm like, KP never stays healthy. It's coming off of injury. Um, I, I have real concerns. It's a tough division. You got Spurs. You got Rockets. Uh, you mm-hmm. got Pelicans. You know, there's just like so much talent in that division, which is a lot of games that they have to play. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty low on Dallas compared to most people. Okay, and I read that article um, about maybe a week ago, and I saw that you talked about Atlanta Hawks a little bit, and, and you had an interesting tidbit there where they have the 30th ranked strength of schedule in the last two months of the season. I mean, and they have a good young core that you can't overlook. Do you think there's any way you know they may make a run at that last spot in the playoffs come April? Um, if if the East is just like epically bad, okay. Um, then yeah, are we talking about the Hawks? Is it, is the Hawks, yeah. Yeah, um, if the East is just like horrifically bad, then they might be able to make a run at it. But like, part of what I got sold on was um, like Chandler Parsons. You can't expect to play, right? Like he's not going to be on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, they are realistically going to be the worst defense in the NBA. Okay. Like just realistically, if you had if if I had to bet on who's going to have the worst defense, the Hawks. I would feel I would sleep like a baby putting money on the Hawks. Okay. Um, the Cavs, the only real threat to them. Mm-hmm. Um, Evan Turner, I think, will help a little bit. Alan Crabb's a little underrated, honestly, at this point. He's like a little underrated because of how bad his contract is. Mm-hmm. But like, look, look at this, like. DeAndre Hunter, rookie, Jabari Parker, Trey Young, John Collins, Cam Reddish, who's a rookie, uh, and Kevin Horner. Like, there is not a defender to be found Mm -hmm. in that stretch of guys. Um, The best defensive player on that team is probably Evan Turner. The second best defensive player on that team is Alex Len. And Len's pretty good. Like, Len's a sneaky good guy, but uh, that. That, that roster is so young and so bad defensively, I don't think they're going to give themselves much of a chance. Is this the year we finally see Kevin Love on a new team, or is he just stuck in Cleveland forever? Uh, I tend to believe that, that he'll get traded. Um, that's not based off of Intel. That's just based mm-hmm. off of like how these things go. Um, I think when it happens, it's going to have to come at a point where instead of it being that the Cavs are terrible, they got to trade Kevin Love, the Cavs have to trade from a position of strength. It has to be, oh, they really got something going. They're like they've, you know, Colin Sexton's taking a taking a, a jump, or Garland's way better than expected. Mm-hmm. If that happens and they've got a core going forward, then yeah, okay, you know, maybe they'll cash in the chips on Love. But that's what they're gonna have to get to, and he's gonna have to want out um, mm-hmm. for that to happen. And that hasn't happened yet. So like, it would not shock me if he's traded by the deadline. Uh, but I also can't bank on it because they have to be they have to deal from a position of strength and not weakness. Okay. And last question before we get to the Twitter questions here. Um, is Carmelo Anthony going to play in the NBA again? No. Do you think if he did what Joe Johnson didn't go to the big three, would that, would that help at all? Or is his reputation as a player just unfixable at this point? If, it, if he showed a humbling moment and went to the big three and did something like that, would that help at all? No, because like – Joe's back because like Joe's always good. Like Joe just Joe just showed like hey he's still viable. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that Mello went to the big three because he wouldn't do the things in the big three. The teams would be like hey we could really use that. There's just mm-hmm. nothing Mello does that you go like we could really use that. That's a problem. It's not about his attitude or his ego. He doesn't okay. have that. He's a team player. It's that he brings nothing to the table. The teams can identify and go. He addresses mm-hmm. a need for us. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to get to some Twitter questions here, and then we'll um, end the show here. But the first question comes from Connor Kelly. 
And he wanted to know your favorite finals team and why. And also he wanted to quickly add in that he's a big Thunder fan. He, he's wanted to tell you that Thunder fans everywhere appreciate your never-ending battle to give context to Russ and the Thunder in general for all the years. So he really appreciates your work for him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the only guy that continues to be like, I don't think they had a choice in the Harden trade. Um, uh-huh. uh, my favorite finals team of all time is the 1994 Houston Rockets. Okay. Um, Elijah won with Kenny Smith and Otis Thorpe and Robert Ory. That team was fun as hell, and it was kind of a harbinger for the next what for what eventually evolved like 15 years later with the perimeter attack. Um, and that it was like a really interesting, um, you know, like you force the double with this dynamic talent in Elijah Wine and his ability to hit shooters on the perimeter. And they played such tough defense. Mm-hmm. That was a series that really got me to obsess about the NBA. I liked the NBA before, but I started to obsess about the NBA after the 94 finals. Well, sad thing to note here is I was born in 95, so I wasn't even alive for that. So maybe I can live through. I missed a lot, um, for sure. But uh, moving on, we have a question from Aaron Clements, and he asks, "What do you think in your mind was the best bargain free agency signing this offseason? There could be more than one because there are a lot of big contracts and a lot of bad ones out. So, what do you think were, were some good deals for teams?" So the problem with this is like there's so many I can't keep track. Yeah. Uh, I don't like have an answer. Probably Thad Young by Utah. Like that was like okay. a really sneaky good one where they lost favors but picked up Conley and Thad Young meant that they didn't have to lose. Like they didn't just take a bath on everything that Derek Favors brought to the table. Like Young's not as good as Favors at power forward, but he does so many good things that he's going to help. I think a lot in that aspect. Um. I will put in there who else is it? Um, the Nuggets getting Jeremy Grant that wasn't free agency, but it was a trade. Mm-hmm. That was a really smart pickup to take advantage of, of the Thunder situation uh, to get a guy that's going to help them in, in really direct ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me ask you this: Do do you like the two year fifteen million for Derrick Rose, or do you think that you would like the better no, one year deal? No, you should not. No, Derrick. If you're trying to, if you are trying to move forward in the NBA, Derrick Rose needs to not be on your team. And he had good numbers last year, and that's fine. Um, and I'm not gonna like Rose is is, is problematic because um, you have to address his on court stuff, which has nothing to do with the off court stuff. But it's a disservice not to mention the off court stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's just like this really like I try just not to talk about Derrick Rose as much as possible because that it's just too complicated to kind of unwrap in any sort of small context um, or even larger one. It's just a really complicated thing. I think that his three point shooting last year was mirage though. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't buy into that. I think mm-hmm. that his shooting percentage as it wore on, like the bottom dropped out because he's mm-hmm. not a good shooter. And so like I I don't think he's gonna I think that you're it's gonna I think that by January 1, we're going to be staring at numbers on the on-off court that show that the Pistons are way better with Derrick Rose on the bench. Okay. Interesting. Okay, and he also asks, is this, is this it for Boogie? Do you think he's done or do you think he comes back? I can't. I mean, he may come back, but it's going to be like on a flyer. And like, I just, you can't come back from those injuries. Yeah. You know, coming back from the Achilles is almost impossible mm-hmm. um, for most people. Like, I have faith Kevin Durant can do it because he's Kevin Durant, but... Mm-hmm. You know, a- ACL, what he had last year in the playoffs, and then and then on the Achilles on top of it, mm-hmm. that's just too much. I can't. Mm-hmm. I at this point, I can't believe he's going to overcome it. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, and I have a, a big Grizzlies fan here in Austin Hopper. He he wanted you to rank Jaron Jaw and Brandon Clark in order based on who has the highest floor and ceiling. 
let me ask you this first. Are you high on Jaw? Yeah, I'm really high on Jaw. I was very relieved when they took him. Okay. Um, I, I, I think he's got the right attitude to, to win in the NBA because of his competitiveness. The same thing that makes De'Aaron Fox really good. Okay. Like, he's a killer, and mm-hmm. that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, ceiling is Jaron. That's the highest ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's Jaw, and then it's and then it's Brandon. Brandon's really good, but I think Brandon taps out as like incredibly smart role player, and Jaw mm-hmm. taps out as like Kyle Lowry, borderline all star. And then like Jaron Jackson could be like one of the five best power forwards in the NBA, like one of the three best power forwards in the NBA. Yeah. Like that's, I think that's the ceiling. So do you think that Memphis can become a team that's going to be really really fun to watch, and maybe you know maybe not this year, but a year or two, and maybe get in the playoffs? You know, come three four years down the road. Yeah, five, five, four to five years from now, they're going to be a problem to deal with. They're going to be, they're going to be really good because they have such a good core and, and the combination of the guys of who they got, mm-hmm. the way that they work together, that naturally is going to make it easier to fit around them, and that's going to boost them even higher. They're going to be really good. They are, I will say, like they won't win a title because it's just very unlikely that anyone wins a title. It's not one of the major teams, mm-hmm. but uh, they're going to be. Really fun to watch grow up over the next four or five years. How long is Iguodala staying on this team, do you think? I don't think he's there on opening day. Okay. I think he's probably gone. But that's not that's not sourced. That's just my own. That's just me uh, knowing how these things work. And then mm-hmm. Andre's perspective, I think he's probably gone by the by the time training camp opens. So will it be a team like the Lakers who take him? Uh, latest reports are the Clippers. I think... Um, the Rockets are probably still in play. Like a lot of it's just going to depend mm-hmm. on who's going to offer more. Like Andre's rational. He'll go where he has the best money. Like he knows that minutes is no longer a thing for him, and so he's looking for for money. Uh, okay. Whoever's going to be able to give him the best deal is who's going to get mm-hmm. him. Okay, interesting. And uh, Logan Johnson, he wanted to ask who will be the next young player to take the leap and become a first time All Star in the East and West this year. Oh, what a good question. Um, Let's see. I got. I've got a hot take. I know I can find in here somewhere. Give me a second. I can find something. Okay. Uh, Devin Booker is an easy one. Uh, uh, okay. How about this? Um, I'll say Laurie Markkinen. I'll say Laurie <laughs> Markkinen gets the job done because the East is weak. It's especially weak in the in the in the big man spots. Mm-hmm. I think Markkinen can put up some big numbers on the uh, on the Bulls. So I'll, I'll put Markkinen on there. Okay. Is Chris done? Is he just done in the NBA? Does he does he really give anything anymore, or is everyone kind of giving up on him? Uh, I think he'll probably bounce around for a while. He's got the I think he's got the skill set to where he could eventually get back to being an NBA guy, but he's going to have to rehab his image a lot. Okay. And this has gotten random, but it's coming in my head. Markel Fultz. What do you think about him? What's going on there? God knows, man. Um, <laughs> I think. Is it is it a know, mental thing at this point? Is it not even basketball anymore? Is it just all mental? Uh, I mean. I think now it's just like we gotta wait and see whether he's on the raw. Like we gotta see whether he's in the starting lineup on opening night. Like we gotta like the latest thing was like he's nowhere near it, and that's fine. And so like he's never gonna he's never gonna get back. He doesn't. Yeah. I'll say that if he's not back this year, he's never getting back. This okay. is it. But okay. uh, I continue to want to hold out hope for him because of how weird everything was. Is he one of the bigger busts you can think of for these recent years? Um, I don't necessarily think he's a bust. I think a bust is a guy. Like Derek Williams is a bust. Well, it's like you, you you drafted a guy high and he played, um, and he just wasn't any good. Like Darko was a bust because he sucked, yeah. right? Like 
Markel got hurt and then was mentally broken and never got back. Mm-hmm. And like the way it was handled from everybody in the situation was bad. Him, uh, the people that manage him, his agent, the Sixers, everybody screwed up Markel mm-hmm. Fultz. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a collective failure of the NBA. Uh, I don't consider that to be a bust. I think you get to be somebody that was like Anthony Bennett, where it's like, well, you can play, you just don't want him to. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. And, and I don't know how much you've actually been in locker rooms and things like that, but Ben Hansen um, asks, what's the funniest locker moment you've witnessed or a teammate prank that you've seen? I don't know how much you've been in there. Uh, you don't see a ton of things. Um, let's see. J.J. Hickson clowned my shoes once. Just absolutely, like, ripped my shoes apart because I was wearing CP3s. <laughs> um, and I didn't have the, the the balls to respond with. Yeah, but I, my shoes spent more time on the court than yours did tonight. Oh, man. Um, which would probably have gotten my ass kicked by him and the others. What else have I seen? Have you witnessed um, awkward interactions between, like, beat writers and players when they ask a dumb question and this just gets really awkward? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of those where it's just like the uh, one of my favorites. I've just I've been covering the Nuggets now for seven years. I'm the oldest guy there, mm-hmm. um, besides Chris Dempsey. And so, like, there will be questions, and there are certain players that will just like look at me as if I'm supposed. Like, they'll just like, what is that? Like, what? Why? What is happening? Like, I'm responsible for this person asking this question. <laughs> Gary Harris says that with me a lot. Uh, another locker room story: Javale McGee was wearing. Uh, socks with um images of strippers on poles on them <laughs> and uh somebody asked him about his socks and he said he was just uh out there to support single mothers which i was like jesus Joel. um what else you know honestly the biggest locker memories for me are not like funny it's mm-hmm. more I was at Tim Duncan's last locker room wow. uh, availability and seeing like he knew that that was it mm-hmm. and it was like hanging and it's not final because he could always decide to change his mind. But yeah. the fact that he like everyone in that scrum knew and it mm-hmm. was just hanging there. Um, I was at that series. I covered Thunder Spurs that year in 2016. And um, I, I'm on. I'm sitting courtside for Game Six, and uh, they're doing the intros for the Thunder. And I look over while they're like the spotlights on the other end of the floor, and you know there's a, the music and the mascots running around and everything. And I look over on the right side, and it's the Spurs side of the court, and. Tim Duncan is standing at the free throw line by himself, hmm. uh, looking at the court, wow. like staring up at the ceiling and the rafters in the room, hmm. like just by himself. And then like, he just like ducks his head and stands there for a few minutes. And it was like, I have a photo of it. And it's like an extremely hmm. powerful moment hmm. for, to see this legend of the game in like knowing like these are his last moments on NBA floor. It was, uh, hmm. like, I, those are the kind of things that are, that, you do not forget in mm-hmm. the job. Yeah, and that probably makes the job even more worth it after all the tireless nights and everything like that. Um, sure. And Okay, so the last question here is from me, and I wanted to ask you, who do you have winning the MVP this year, and what team are you going to ride with to the finals? Uh, I can't 
the MVP because I'm still doing the analysis on it. I'll say that I think the best value is on Steph Curry. He's at plus 500. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a good chance that Steph goes absolutely ballistic this year. But I think mm-hmm. that uh, there's a lot of – like it's better to get a position on multiple guys this year than, than to say one guy's going to win it. Um, and the NBA title. Um, Do you have one team in L.A. you think will be in the finals regardless? Yeah. I do. Um, I'll say the Lakers right now. Okay. This is a non-final answer. I haven't gotten that far yet. Um, I'm high on the Lakers. I think that they're going to be better than expected. I was very low on them last year. Um, I'll say the Lakers right now. I think there's a look. I think there's like a 75% chance that the Lakers or Clippers are the Western Conference champion. And so, like that kind of tells where where it winds up as and. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, look, the, I think the Bucks and the Sixers are both going to be really good. I, the, be, the best part, man, is that I don't know. Like, yeah. I really can't yeah. tell you. For the first time in a long time, mm-hmm. I don't know, and I really can. I, I almost don't want to make predictions because mm-hmm. I want to hold on to the idea that I don't know. Uh-huh. Do you do you buy what the Sixers are selling with Al Horford there? I have the Sixers with the best record in the NBA next season at 56 wins. Wow. I think the Sixers are going to be the biggest thing about the Sixers is that they lost Jimmy Butler, but the rest of their moves were geared around empowering and making Joel Embiid the best he can be, and mm. that's um, like that's a really valuable thing. But like that's a really valuable thing to make to optimize your best player is better than having multiple weapons. And so mm. I think that there's a good chance the Sixers are going to absolutely just wreck teams next year. Interesting. Because I didn't know if it'd be like that or they would kind of not be as good, but playoff come playoff time, they would be a powerhouse and go through everybody. Yeah, I'm on the other side of that. So. Okay, cool. Well, Matt, that that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much. How much uh, how much time will you spend on Twitter before you go to bed, you think, tonight? <laughs> not very long. I'm getting ready to go watch some shows with my wife. i got to get in all the off-season time, quality time that I can before the season starts again. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, and that has been the sixth episode of the Shandy Special.